1 Samuel chapter 17. You might remember that we were introduced to David in the previous chapter when God told Samuel, his prophet, to go to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. God had rejected Israel's first king, Saul, because Saul had rebelled against the word of the Lord. Acts 13.22 says, And when God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. We saw that as soon as David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. But in the very next verse, 1 Samuel 16, 15, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and instead a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. And even though Saul had no idea at this point that David would one day replace him as king, God providentially brought David to the court of Saul to minister to him through music. Whenever David played his lyre, a harp-like instrument, the harmful spirit would leave Saul and the king would be well again for a while. But at the start of 1 Samuel 17, trouble returns, not only to King Saul, but to all of Israel as the Philistines, their enemies, invade the land. So we see first they're encountering the enemy. We read of their invasion in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah, and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. As I read these verses, um, I remembered quite vividly that I, along with Dave Mirabella and others, stood in this very valley a few years ago when we toured the land of Israel. I remember how easily it was standing there in the valley in the dry um, stream bed and looking at the mountainous slopes on either side and picturing the army of Israel on one side and the army of the nation Philistia on the other. The contest between David and Goliath took place on the very floor of this valley, which is where we were standing at that time, halfway between these two opposing armies. We're told that the Philistines gathered between Soko and Ezekah, the border towns of Judah in the land of Israel. Their plan was to defeat Israel on the outskirts of their territory and then work their way in. And while we have a lot to get through this morning, 58 verses in this chapter, I do want to point out that there are spiritual lessons to be learned along the way in in sometimes what seems to be the most obscure, perhaps almost irrelevant verses. And I would suggest to you that the geographic situation they faced here is a spiritual situation we face every day of our lives. And what I mean is this. Just as they started on the outskirts, the most vulnerable points of Israel, and tried to work their way in to cut them at the very jugular of the nation, I would suggest to you that in the spiritual warfare that we face against Satan and sin, that's the same strategy Satan uses. Ephesians tells believers in chapter 6 of that New Testament book that we are engaged every day in a great spiritual battle. And in two chapters earlier, we're told, do not give the devil a foothold. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We're told instead to be strong in the Lord so that we can stand against the tricky schemes or the strategies of the devil. In his book, The Disciplines of Grace, Jerry Bridges wrote, quote, sin has a tendency to exert an ever-increasing power on us if it is not resisted on every occasion. End quote. Soko and Ezekah, these border towns of Israel, I believe spiritually represent the weak points in our lives where we're most vulnerable to Satan's attacks. 
For some of us, it could be a lack of discipline in our bodies, how we eat or how we exercise, the amount of sleep that we get, or time management. It could be a desire for affirmation or approval from others. For a lot of people, that's their weak spot. They look to please, and that can make them vulnerable to sin. Some struggle with all sorts of sexual temptation. Others have a tendency to gossip or to speak critically about others behind their back or to be constantly complaining with their mouths rather than giving thanks. The question I would pose to you this morning at the very outset of this chapter as we look at the invasion that took place in Israel is, where are you most vulnerable in your life? Where are you most vulnerable in your life? We're not saying that the thing itself is a sin, but what are your weaknesses that Satan would love to capitalize on to get an inroad into your life? Verse 1 says, The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. That is to say, they had no right being there. This town rightfully belonged to the tribe of Judah and the nation of Israel. And I would suggest to you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no square inch of your life belongs to the devil. But he will take every inch that you give him. And if you give him an inch, you can bank on it that he'll take a yard. And so to me, this is a great warning to us in the spiritual battle that we face, knowing that I belong to Christ, body and soul, that no square inch of my life belongs to the devil But he'll look to get a hold, a foothold there if I let him. So we must constantly be on our guard and be strong in the Lord. The Bible says we're to be sober, to be vigilant, to be constantly awake and alert because Satan is on the prowl. After we see this invasion, we see the intimidation by the enemy in verses 4 to 11. Look initially with me at verses 4 to 7 of 1 Samuel 17. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. It's been pointed out that this portrayal of Goliath is probably the most detailed physical description of anyone in Scripture. By converting the ancient measurements to our modern English system, we see that Goliath stood nearly 10 feet tall. I almost had one of the kids just stay up here and look for one that was maybe about three feet tall and just have him or her stand next to me so you could see the height difference. And that's what it was like from David to Goliath. Almost 10 feet tall, he wore a bronze helmet. He was clothed with scaled body armor. These were like uh, bronze metal plates, hundreds of them that resembled fish scales that were threaded to an underlying cloth or leather on his body. We're told that it weighed 125 pounds. You put on your winter coat and that feels heavy? This is like 125 pounds, and it doesn't include the bronze armor that covered his legs. His offensive weaponry was a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. This Hebrew word for javelin could also be translated sword. And I think that's actually how it ought to be translated, because we know later on in the story that David grabs his sword. But he also had a spear. And we're told that this spear had a shaft like a weaver's beam. I don't know about you, but I, I didn't really know what a weaver's beam was. Well, a weaver's beam is a long, strong wooden pole that's about two to two and a half inches in diameter at the top of a loom. And you can see by the picture there that attached to it were these long vertical threads known as the warp. 
And they were kept taut by having weights that were tied to them at the bottom. And as they were hanging there off the weaver's beam, weighted at the bottom to be kept separate from each other and taut, then the filling threads, known as the weft, were woven in sideways. And you can see that. So this whole thing was supported by that pole at the top known as the weaver's beam. So to say that the shaft of Goliath's spear was like a weaver's beam was to emphasize how unusually thick and strong it was. In fact, that there are only four verses in Scripture that say that a soldier's spear was like that of a weaver's beam. Out of those four references, three of them refer to Goliath and his brothers, and the one other reference is to that of an Ethiopian warrior who was seven and a half feet tall. So the point is, it took a humongous warrior to handle this kind of a weapon. Why? Because the tip alone, the bronze or iron tip at the end of it, weighed nearly 17 pounds. In order to understand the physics of this, so that Goliath could hold it with one hand and have kind of that center of gravity where he needed it to be, it is estimated that the pole would have had to have been 10 to 12 feet long. So imagine a spear, two to two and a half inches in diameter, 10 to 12 feet long with a 17-pound iron tip at the end. Pretty incredible. Goliath, with his towering stature, his massive armor, his astounding weaponry, was a formidable foe, to say the least. In fact, Goliath is such an imposing figure that when we read this in uh, 1 Samuel 17, even when we tend to tell the story to children or whatever, we tend to forget that there was another person in front of him, his shield bearer, who bore the shield providing Goliath with double protection. Goliath was understandably confident that he would win which is why he issued his challenge in the most arrogant manner, utterly defying the armies of Israel. It's important to understand that this was more than just a military campaign that we might see in our day like Russia invading Ukraine. Because in the ancient Near East, military strength reflected the strength of that nation's deity. So if a nation conquered another nation, that showed that their God was stronger than the God of the nation that they conquered. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, I think it's 1 Kings chapter 20, we understand that Israel's enemies thought that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. So the fact that this battle was taking place in the valley was, in the perception of the Philistines, an even greater advantage. So this was incredible confidence that they would have had on this occasion. The location of the conflict only fueled Goliath's arrogance. Look now, if you would, at verses 8 to 11. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is mentioned first, and is even mentioned by Goliath because he was the king of Israel. And if you recall, Saul was also heads and shoulders above all the other men in Israel. So if any man of Israel was going to come out fighting this massive soldier, Goliath, representing the nation Israel, it should have been Saul. But we're told that he was dismayed and afraid just like the other men. Saul was a different man, wasn't he, than he was at first. Do you remember the Saul of 1 Samuel 11? 
when he was first anointed king of Israel? Back then, in 1 Samuel 11, the Ammonites invaded the land and were told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Saul was indignant, and he rallied all the men of Israel who came out as one man, the Bible says, and slaughtered the Ammonites. And the few who remained were scattered. They were the ones that were running afraid, while the people of Israel rejoiced over this great victory. But now here we are, six chapters later, and the Spirit of God has departed from Saul. And so we're told in verse 11 that when he and his troops heard the Philistines' challenge, they were terrified and lost all hope. The difference between courage and cowardice is the presence of God. We see that in the life of Saul. Look with me at verse 16. We're told for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. By my calculations, 40 times 2, that's 80 times this challenge was issued defying the armies of Israel, challenging any man to come out and fight him. Eighty times this challenge was issued, and eighty times for forty days it went unanswered. The situation appeared to be utterly bleak. But in verse 12, in fact, even in the first two words of verse 12, things begin to change. First two words, now David... Now David, going to see a contrast between David here in verse 12 and in verse 1. Verse 1 says, now the Philistines, and we've read now for 11 verses what's been going on with them, but in verse 12 we read, now David, and I would submit to you that the introduction of David in 1 Samuel 17 is the turning point of the passage. Israel goes from being terrified to being triumphant, from encountering the enemy to experiencing the victory. As David is introduced, the scene shifts from the battleground there between Soko and Azekah in the valley of Elah to Bethlehem, where David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, is with his father. But then his father sends him on a trip from Bethlehem to the battlefront. Verses 12 to 22 set the stage for this epic battle between David and Goliath. Let's look at David's trip in verses 20 and verse 12 to 22. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Of course, we knew that from the previous chapter. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As the stage is set for the confrontation that's about to occur, the author drops a couple of linguistic clues 
that are easy to miss if we don't draw attention to them. Verse 20 says, David left the sheep with a keeper. Verse 22, David left the things in charge of the keeper. What the author is hinting at here and what will become evident in the narrative that ensues is that David is leaving the flock. He is leaving his role as a shepherd in order to stop leading sheep and to start leading the people of God. This is a transition in David's life where God is bringing him from the sheepfolds to be the leader of his people, Israel. And through this whole transition, we see David's trust in the Lord. David's trust, verses 23 to 47. Look first at verses 23 to 24. As he talked with them, that is his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Now I want us to notice in these two verses the contrast between David and the men of Israel. I actually find this pretty fascinating. When Goliath shouts the same challenge, he issues the same blasphemous, arrogant words as he had spoken previously. It says that David heard him. Remember, he's been doing it for 80 times now, 40 straight days. But this is the first time that David is on sight and David heard him. But we're told that all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. Did you catch that? David heard the words Whereas all the other men of Israel and Saul saw the man. Didn't we learn something about appearances in the last chapter? Do you remember when Samuel was so impressed by the height and the stature and the looks of Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed? What did the Lord say? Samuel Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord looks or sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One commentator writes that this principle applies both to our finest choices and to our most formidable enemies. Do not be impressed by appearances whether seemingly for good or seemingly for evil. Because the men of Israel were focused on Goliath's appearance, they were afraid. But because David was hearing Goliath's profanity, he was infuriated. The contrast between David and the men of Israel continues in verses 25 to 27, where the soldier's resignation are contrasted with David's indignation. Look at verses 25 to 27. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now notice the contrast. I think this is very key. The men of Israel, remember they're focused on appearance. They refer to Goliath as this man. Have you seen this man? David says, calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. The men of Israel say that the Goliath has come up to defy Israel. David says, this uncircumcised Philistine has come out to defy the armies of the living God. The men of Israel are focused on the reward, whereas David's concerned with removing the reproach from Israel that has come on them by this uncircumcised Philistine's blasphemous words against the God of Israel. 
David is a man after God's own heart because he's entering this situation with God's perspective. He is zealous for God's glory. The men of Israel may be no match for this Philistine, but this Philistine is no match for God. And David knew it. Another thing that's interesting that I had not realized till this past week is this is the first time that David talks in Scripture. And the first words out of his mouth are a lesson on theology. God is alive. He is all-powerful. And He is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. David's commitment to the Lord and David's confidence in the Lord are evident from the very moment he opens his mouth. Is that true of us? David's trust in the Lord is demonstrated with each challenge to his faith throughout the remainder of this chapter, culminating in his victory over Goliath. Look at the things that could have easily undermined David's faith, but how David, fighting the good fight of faith, overcame these challenges. First of all, he was not discouraged by the hurtful remarks of a bitter brother. He was not discouraged by the hurtful remarks of a bitter brother. Verses 28 to 30. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Isn't it interesting? Eliab sees Goliath, pays no attention to his words, but as soon as little brother comes along, He's very quick to hear what he's saying, and he thinks he knows David's heart. One thing we see about Eliab at this point in his life, he may look like a king, but he doesn't have the heart of a king. He's just a bitter, older brother. As one author put it, Eliab tends to be a mirror at this point in Scripture. In chapter 16, you might recall, he was a mirror of handsome Saul, tall and handsome. But in chapter 17, he's a mirror of Goliath who will soon show contempt for David, the contempt that Eliab has already expressed. Just like Joseph's older brothers were bitter about his dream of reigning over them and couldn't speak a kind word to him, the same was true of Eliab from the day that David was anointed, perhaps even before that. He resented his brother instead of rejoicing over God's work in his life. David's response, what have I done now? Indicates that Eliab was constantly on his case. Constantly criticizing him. Constantly demeaning him. Constantly putting him down. But instead of getting discouraged by his brother's remarks or lashing back with some hurtful, hateful comments of his own, we're told that David simply turned away from him and kept talking like he did before. Still concerned about God's glory. What are we going to do about this situation? He was not discouraged by his older brother's hurtful comments, but he stayed focused on the issue at hand, which was defending the glory of the God of Israel. He overcame that challenge. Secondly, he was not dissuaded by the human reasoning of a carnal king. He was not dissuaded by the human reasoning of a carnal king. Look at verses 31 to 33. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He doesn't even call him Goliath. He's like, who's this guy? Verse 33, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. 
but he has been a man of war from his youth. You should note that all the pronouns in verse 33 appear in the emphatic position. You may want to circle them or underline them. So Saul says, displaying the fact that he's still focused on appearances, he says to David, you can't fight this Philistine. You are but a boy. But he has been a warrior from his youth. Continuing on, verse 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by a beard or by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Where Saul is focused on appearances, thinking that David is no match for Goliath. David is focused on the Lord and knows that Goliath is no match for God. Although it's not evident in the ESV translation that we use, David actually refers to the Lord twice in verse 37. Here's how it actually reads from the Hebrew. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Dale Davis makes an excellent point here. He says, quote, You must keep verse 37, He will deliver me before you. If you don't, you will misconstrue verses 34 to 36. David will be delivered not because he has true grit, but because he knows the true God. End quote. David's faith is sustained in the present as he recounts God's deliverances in the past. You see this constantly from the Psalms. Lord, you delivered me this time and this time and this time and that time. You will deliver me in my present crisis. The same God that delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. That's nothing to God. But Saul still doesn't get it. He wishes David well, but he's still operating by worldly wisdom, by human reasoning. Look at the second half of verse 37 through verse 40. Let me find it myself. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. I just love how quickly these taking place. No, I can't be wearing this stuff. Where's my sling? Where's my shepherd's equipment? I'm not a soldier. I'm a shepherd. Here's, he takes the stuff he's familiar with and immediately begins to approach the Felicity. Let's get this over and done with. Let's get this guy to shut up. He's been going on too long. David was used to shepherd's equipment, not as soldiers. And here's the thing. David knew God can use any tool to accomplish his purpose. God doesn't need swords and spears. God can use a sling, a staff, a stone if he wants to. And this freed David to be himself. Use the skills that God had given him. The experience that God had providentially placed in his life. So after taking off Saul's armor, David selects five stones from the stream bed of the valley of Elah. I also took five stones from that same stream bed when I was there, brought him home. Now, <clears throat> due to travel restrictions, each of my stones were about that big. We know from archaeological accounts that the stones 
that would have been picked for, a sl- for sling purposes would have been about two to three inches in diameter and more of a, a round shape. Okay, so maybe, uh, maybe somewhere between the size of a golf ball and a baseball. David selects five stones from the stream bed of the Valley of Elah and puts them in the shepherd's pouch. And we're told his sling was in his hand. We have a picture of a sling there. It consisted of two long cords with a pocket at the center, either made of leather or cloth. The slinger would place the stone in the pocket, grasp both ends of the long cords, and whirl the stone around. So the kids here were very accurate. And round and round and round. That's what they would do. Go round and round and round and round. And then when they released the stone, they would let go of one of the cords, hold on to the other, and the stone would go flying toward the target. With his sling in hand, David approached the Philistine. His faith was not in human reasoning. His faith was in the living God. Thirdly, he was not deterred by the hollow rants of a defeated foe. Verses 41 to 42. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, there you have it, appearances. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a, but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Goliath, like everybody else except David, is focused on appearances. He disdains David. He can't believe that this boy is coming out against a mighty warrior like him. What comes next is a war of words. It's probably my favorite part of the story. Verses 43 to 47. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the heavenly armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Sound like David is intimidated to you? Goliath's threats don't intimidate David, not in the least, because he knew that he had all the power of heaven behind him. And the Spirit of God was with him. David said rightly, the battle is the Lord's. He said, I want all this assembly to know. So he not only wanted the Philistines to know this, he wanted his fellow Israelites to know this, who were dismayed and afraid in the presence of Goliath. They needed to be reminded that there is a God in Israel. He is alive, he is all-powerful, and he is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, and we are his people. We are to represent this great God. He is the living God, and he is our God. David knew that God doesn't need swords and spears, but can deliver his people any way he chooses, even with the humblest of means. Two cords in a pouch with a stone if he wants. Any number of things could have undermined David's faith. The hurtful remarks of a bitter brother, the human reasoning of a carnal king, the hollow rants of a defeated foe, But none of these things moved him, not an inch, because the Lord was David's confidence. And David knew before the battle even began that God would give him the victory. So let's look at David's triumph, starting in verse 48. It's interesting, of the 58 verses in this chapter, only seven of them are actually dedicated to the showdown between David and Goliath. 
and Israel's rout of the Philistine army. And I think the point is this. Everything leading up to this is really, in a sense, the most important part of the story because once we get that, we know that the battle is over before it really even begins. It no sooner begins and it's over with. The narrator describes in staccato-like sequence what happened. Verses 48 to 54. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel in Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So whereas the men of Israel had initially run away in fear from Goliath, we see that David runs quickly in confidence toward Goliath. He is ready to take him on with God's help. And he kills him, just like he said he would. For God's honor to be upheld, the enemy must be silenced. This boastful arrogance, this define of the armies of the living God, would not be tolerated. For God's honor to be upheld, the enemy must be silenced. He had to be defeated, otherwise he would continue to boast. But I think it's worth noting, very important to note actually, that at no time in this account does David take any credit for the successful outcome. Did you catch that? Even after his victory, David doesn't see himself as some kind of superhero, but as a servant. His humility is seen in the epilogue of the story, verses 55 to 58. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Can you imagine that scene? Who, who is this? What household? Man, I don't know. Go find out. Bring this guy to me. And David comes just bloody, having the head of Goliath in his hand. It's like, yes, sir? <laughs> Whose son are you? Now you may wonder, wait a second, we just studied the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 16, and David would pay his heart for, you know, his lyre for King Saul, and it says that Saul loved him greatly. We read that Saul had sent his servants to Jesse to tell David to come and minister to him. How does this square away? Well, the author makes no attempt to, to reconcile this account, but I think there's a few answers that could provide an easy solution to this. We have read about Saul's deteriorating mental condition. Harmful spirit of the Lord plagued him. And at times he had manic episodes, was, was guilty of um, or uh, experienced tremendous paranoia, uh, fits of rage. And if you've known anybody that's been uh, suffering from those kind of mental conditions, you know that a lot of times they have temporary bouts of amnesia, forgetfulness. Um, things slip their mind. And so that might certainly be the case. I think it's more likely that maybe Saul wanted to clarify whose David family was 
since he had promised to make his family tax-free. So it's easy for Saul to get a little forgetful because it says that David had been going back and forth. It wasn't like he was just constantly playing for Saul. And Saul had many, many, many servants that were going in and out all the time. And David would at times leave the sheep field, come to King Saul, go back to the sheep field for a time, then return to him. We even saw that at the beginning of this chapter. So it might have been like, whose son is he? He knew previously who he was, but he can't remember in the moment whose son is he. And he also might want clarity about the household because one of the rewards of whoever conquered Goliath is that his family would be tax-free. So who is this family that he belongs to, this household? Because now they don't have to pay any more taxes in Israel. I think also Saul could have been curious. Um, Who's your father? Does he have any more sons like you at home? We know from the end of 1 Samuel 14, the very last verse, it says, quote, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself, end quote. So Saul might simply be one. Who's your father? I don't know if he has more sons like you. David was only a boy. But boy, did he make a big impression on Saul. But you know, as we follow the storyline of Scripture, we see eventually that it's David's descendant who's the real hero of an even bigger story. He too was a Bethlehemite by birth, as the angels announced on the Judean hillside. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A thousand years after David's epic battle with Goliath took place, the same Lord in whom David put his trust won the ultimate battle. He did it by becoming a servant, by being born as a human being. Jesus declared in the Gospel of John, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the, but the will of him who sent me. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Goliath was a big enemy, but Satan is a far bigger enemy. And Satan was the real enemy behind Goliath's attacks on the people of Israel. So David's battle with Goliath, though big, was but a prefiguring of the ultimate battle between Jesus, his descendant, and Satan. Nobody was more zealous for God's glory than his own beloved son. It was said of him in fulfillment of prophecy, zeal for your house, for your glory has consumed me. He was the ultimate man after God's own heart, for he was God in human flesh. In the garden he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was the only man who ever really did all of God's will, for even David would fail in doing that. Jesus is the Lord in whom David placed his confidence. Here's the difference. David didn't have to die to achieve his victory, but Jesus did. Scripture says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of of dying. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Jesus said, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Just as David trusted the Lord to deliver him from Goliath, so Jesus trusted in his heavenly Father to deliver him from death. Three days later, Christ arose, and he ascended to the Father at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in the same way, we are called to trust in the Lord to deliver us from our sins. Matthew one twenty one says, He came to save His people from their sins. 
When we trust in the Lord to forgive us of our sins, we overcome too by the power of Christ, not only sin, but the fear of death. Think about how many people today are afraid of dying. People are captivated by this fear. And yet those who know Christ, that fear is gone. Because death becomes but a door that ushers us in to the presence of God forever and ever. And as David himself said, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. As believers in Christ, we can fight today the good fight of faith, knowing that overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. And that's what Scripture says in Romans 8. 1 John 5 says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, You are almighty. You are alive. You are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And so we come to You, Heavenly Father, knowing that we are so weak in ourselves that we could not stand even for a moment against our enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. They are constantly attacking us every moment of every day. But you, by your power and grace, preserve us. Please grant us faith like David, O God, who took no confidence in himself, but had ultimate confidence in you. We pray that Like David, you would strengthen us by your Spirit, O God, each and every day, so that we may firmly resist the enemy and be marked by courage rather than cowardice or capitulation in this great spiritual war in which we are engaged. We thank you that all who trust in you, every single person who trusts in you and your Son, will achieve complete victory in the end and will reign together with Christ, our Lord and Protector, forever and ever. Father, we thank you for giving us the kingdom in Christ. I pray that we would remember this gift and that we would walk by faith, not by sight. We pray this in the name of your holy, all-powerful Son, Jesus. Amen.